Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. I'm Julie Lindahl, the author of The Pendulum, founder of Stories for Society and Voices Between, a special project of Stories for Society. With me, I have Derek B. Miller, an international best-selling novelist and international affairs specialist based in Oslo, whose works often address cultures in conflict and characters profoundly affected by war and genocide. In 2013, Derek's novel, Norwegian by Night, was considered to be one of the most important novels of the year by The Economist. He is also the author of The Girl in Green, American by Day, and the forthcoming Twilight Crimes. He is director of the Policy Lab. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You're going to start by reading an excerpt for us from Norwegian by Night, which the New York Times described as a work with the brains of a literary novel and the body of a thriller that resists labels. And I must say that I agree with that. You've described the passage you're going to read as the fulcrum of the novel. So without further ado, over to you. What is this book? It's a, um, in one way, it is a chase through the woods thriller. On the other hand, it is an intergenerational drama, albeit sometimes a funny one. But there's a story at the heart of it, which is what I want to get to here, between a father and a son. The son, uh, Saul, follows in his father, Sheldon's footsteps, and goes to Vietnam. The scene that I want to read to you is the moment when Saul, in his early 20s, comes back from Vietnam and tries to engage his father in a conversation about what he's experienced there. Sheldon, who has also experienced war and experienced war in a significant way without giving away too much, is doing his best to engage his son in the conversation that his son desperately needs to have. But in some fundamental way, he, he he lacks the resources. And I think all I need to say at the beginning here is it's the early 70s, and Sheldon loves his son desperately. And so what we experience is, is a version of him doing the best he can. I'll just start from there. Saul put the duffel bag down by the umbrella stand and stretched his shoulders. He took a deep breath, pulling the past into his lungs where it didn't belong. Thanks. His father did not get up. You look okay, he said. Yeah, said Saul, I do. You hungry? You want some coffee? No, I, I don't think so. You don't think so or no? I don't know the difference. Sit down. Sheldon gestured to the sofa, where his wife Mabel had been curled up with her magazine. His father's calm was reassuring, as though he understood what might have happened over there, but he never understood what his father had done in Korea. He'd asked before, and all his father had said was, I did what I was told to do, which wasn't much help. It was more important now to learn what they might have in common, what his father understood, 
what was understandable at all. How are you doing? Sheldon asked. Saul slumped back into the overstuffed sofa cushions, but still visibly shrugged. I don't know. I'm not completely here yet. Sheldon nodded. I took off with the camera when I got back. You might need to do something. I guess. You thought about it? I haven't even started thinking about it. Saul paused and then asked, What do you think of it? I don't think about it. It's not a choice. I saw stuff, Dad. I did stuff. There's no putting it in a box. I need to figure it out. You did what you did, and you saw what you saw because your country asked you to. You did your service. You did what men do. Now it's over. You try and get back to it all. That's all there is. I know what burning people smell like. And now it's over. It's still in my clothes, Saul said. Then wash them. That's, that's not the point. It has to be the point, Sheldon said. You know what's going on out there? There aren't many like you. You need to step out of Vietnam and step into America and get into character. There are tens of thousands like me. Not Jews, said Sheldon. What the hell does that have to do with anything? Everything. We fought like hell in World War II. We tripped over ourselves to sign up, but in Korea, not as many. And now, every Jew's in college, out there, protesting the war, civil rights, rock and roll, smoking pot. We're not pulling our weight. We're getting weak. We're losing the ground we made. Dad, Saul rubbed his face. For Christ's sakes, Dad. What do you think's going on out there? What, what's going on? America's at war. And rather than get behind our country, we're talking like the communists. Dad, Dad, this country's a mess. There are different ways to make it better. And besides, we have nothing to prove anymore. I was born here. You were born here. Your parents were born here. How American do we need to be? There's still firms on Wall Street that won't hire us. There are law firms that still don't want us. Dad, in the South, they're still killing black kids. Now, this, this country has a lot of ground to cover. I know that. But we've still got ground to cover ourselves. Ground to, to hold. What happened to you in Korea? I did what I was told. Mom says you were a clerk. That's what I want Mom to say. So basically, men don't talk about it. Who do you tell? What about Bill? Well, Bill was there, too. Not with you. No, he was with Armour. He was somewhere else. We met afterwards, on the street near the shops. You talk to Bill? I talk to Bill every day. I can't get him out of my shop. I have to lock the door. And when I do, he just calls me. Maybe he has a crush on you. <sighs> Sheldon snorted. That's the kind of thing your generation says. It happens. You take things and you turn them into things they aren't, and then you insist that you're right and that everyone else is blind. That's what the communists do. I don't know who the communists are, Dad. They were the ones shooting at you, who want you enslaved to their own view of the world, who put people in the gulag for independent thought, for being free, for not upholding the imperatives of the state and the revolution. Everyone was shooting at me. I don't know why. <sighs> you, you sound like Mario. Who's Mario? Doesn't matter. Who's Mario? A friend. Anyone I know? He died before you were born. You don't need to know about it. I saw a lot of stuff, Dad. I did a lot of stuff. I know. You hungry? You want coffee? I think I want to tell you what I did. I don't want to know. Why not? Because you're my son. That's why not. I want to tell you because you're my father. You might understand. Your country is grateful. That's all that matters. My country isn't grateful, and it doesn't matter at all. I need to figure out how to sit here. You need a distraction. Like repairing watches? That's so awful. You can't fix time, Dad. You should eat something. You've lost weight. You look sickly. I am sickly, Sheldon said nothing. 
Where's Mom? She's sleeping. Saul hoisted himself up from the sofa cushions and walked up the stairs two at a time. Sheldon didn't move. He sat for ten minutes waiting for Saul to return. He assumed that Saul was going to see his mother. He wouldn't learn for many years that he had simply gone upstairs to sit, to look over the banister as he did as a child to see who just rang the doorbell or what kind of mood Dad was in when he came home from work. When Saul came back downstairs, he sat across from his father in the wing-backed armchair where his mother often sat with a book or to watch television. How have you been? he asked his father. Me? I've been working hard, minding my own business, trying to stay out of trouble. Yeah, but how have you been? I just told you. What did you think about when you came back from Korea? Why? Because I'm home from a war, too. I want to know what you thought about. I want to know if it's the same. When I came back from Korea, I thought about Korea. Then I thought about thinking about Korea, and I realized it was a waste of time, so I stopped. How long did that take? Don't be a sissy soul. You took a camera and went to Europe. Yes. What did you find there? It was nine years after World War II. You know what I found there. You didn't just go there to take funny pictures of them, did you? Sure I did, and I was good at it. You hated them, didn't you? Each and every anti-Semitic one of them, didn't you? You went to look into their souls and to see it for yourself, to document it, because you couldn't put them in a rifle sight and shoot them. Would you come up with this stuff? I had time on the boat. You want to know what I found in Europe? I found silence. An awful, dreadful silence. There wasn't a single Jewish voice left. None of our children. Just a couple of meek, shell-shocked hangers-on who hadn't left or been murdered. And Europe just closed up the wound. Filled that silence with their Vespas and Volkswagens and croissants like nothing had happened. You want psychology? Okay. I probably pissed them off to let them know I was still there, to get a reaction from them. What did this have to do with Korea? Everything! It made me proud. It made me proud to be American. It made me proud to have fought for my country. It reminded me that the tribes of Europe will always be just that, tribes. You want to call them nations, go ahead. But they're a bunch of petty tribes. America isn't a tribe. It's an idea. And I'm part of that idea. And so are you. How have I been? I've been proud that you've been fighting for your country, that you're defending the dream. My son is defending the dream. My son is an American. My son has a rifle in his hand and is facing down the enemy. That's how I've been. Saul did not answer right away. Sheldon did not fill the low. Where are the pictures? Saul asked. What pictures? All the pictures you took. They're in the book. Those are the ones you picked. Where are the rest? Normally, his father had his response ready, fired out the second there was an opening. This time... Saul had caught him off guard. Yes, there are more pictures, important pictures, pictures that are never far from me. Sheldon didn't say this. I'm the photographer. I decide what's a picture and what isn't. If it isn't a picture, Saul said, what is it? Did you do any work on that boat at all? I want to see the other photos. No. Maybe someday? I didn't say there anymore. Has Mom seen them? She hasn't been sitting on a boat long enough to come up with a question. What made you come back? You were the one who was away. Why are you asking me all these questions? I feel like I'm on the Dick Cavett show. You took a thousand photographs across a half dozen countries. Then one day you came home. Why? Because the war was over and everyone was dead. I couldn't go back to the war and my friends weren't coming out of it. So I grew up and moved on. Which war? Ugh, enough, Saul, please. Saul tried to fill in what his father couldn't or wouldn't express. They weren't coming back from Korea, he said. But you also mean the ones who went off to fight in 41, who left you behind in America. You watched all happen when you were a kid. The older brothers of your friends, your cousin Abe. 
You were the youngest, and you were left behind, and so you signed up to go to Korea. Saul, said Shelton, growing quieter. I didn't go off to the wrong war. I went off to the next right one. The communists killed millions, millions and millions of people. When I joined up, Stalin was running the Soviet Union and developing nuclear weapons to be aimed at us. The only reason we don't think of Stalin with the same hatred as we do of Hitler is because we were subjected to a massive propaganda campaign during the war, trying to convince us that Uncle Joe was a hero for giving us a second front. But Uncle Joe had signed a secret pact with Hitler, and Russia was only on our side because Germany attacked it. They weren't our eastern front. We were their western one. Mom said he used to cry sometimes when she held me as a baby. Ugh. You're really going too far. Why? Who taught you to talk like this? People my age talk. Just tell me why. Because when I looked at your mother holding you, here in America, I could see the women in Poland who clutched their children to their naked chests in the gas chambers and told them to breathe deeply so they wouldn't suffer. Infants who still smiled at their executioners, squeezed their fingers and lined to their own deaths, and it filled me with rage. You came back from Europe because there was nothing you could do, said Saul. Sheldon nodded. What do I do now, Dad? We're alive because of this country. All its madness, its history, its problems. It's still our campaign and our future. We owe it our very lives, so we protect it from harm and help it grow up right. I know, said Saul. And this country's at war. I know. I don't know how to honor our dead if we don't protect the only place that gave us shelter. If we don't work to make it a better place. I'm going to go to my room now. Okay. I love you, Dad. Sheldon just nodded. Less than a week later, Saul was gone. And shortly after that, he was dead. He'd left a brief note on the kitchen table, saying that he'd signed up for a second tour of duty and was going to be reassigned to the same crew. He'd write, and was wonderful to have seen them both. He loved his parents. He hoped his father was proud of him. And he looked forward to the day when the war was over. Thank you. I always have to take a deep breath after I've read that passage from your book. It has, for me, everything when it comes to war, peace, the generations, identity, America, Europe. So I want to go into those topics, and I want to start with the topic of the generations, the legacy of war and the generations. To me, this passage that you've read, both in the style of the dialogue between the father and son, and in its content really is tragic. These two have both been through a soul-wrenching experience. They love one another, as you said, yet they don't really seem to be able to reach one another in the conversation. Somewhere in the subtext, there's this lingering suggestion that Sheldon's inability to talk to his son about what he has seen and endured. Uh, you mentioned he mentions Mario, and uh, harrowing episodes such as such as the one he went through in Korea with this friend of his. So, his inability to talk to his son about these things creates a void between them, and there's a suggestion that somehow his son becomes the ultimate sacrifice in this. The question is, can we ever bridge this? void between the generations? And if so, how can we do that? It's a wonderful question. I think your reading of the subtext is quite right. I, I wouldn't, I, the only thing I would change is I wouldn't say that Saul was a sacrifice. I would say that he was a, in some ways he was a victim to their, their failure to communicate because 
Sheldon would never have sacrificed his son, and I think Saul didn't. I think there are always generational changes to talk. And this is true within our culture. It's, in this case, American culture, but also in other places around the world, because you'll notice as we look all around the world, we notice that there are periods of time where things seem to be in common. You look at a you know, you look at a French movie in the 60s, and it, it feels like a movie in, from the 60s, not a movie from the 80s or the 20s. And and so there's there's a connection. There's an intercultural, there's an international dialogue, an international moment in time. You know, the 80s were the 80s. So I think this very large power of the of talk can be quite international. Affects how we, that certain premises that sort of organize ourselves, how, what we choose to talk about, the way that we express things, what's expected of us, what's what's understood to be sort of appropriate behavior and this and anchoring it back in the scene is is it appropriate for a man who has been through a war to from Sheldon's point of view unload all this on his family to use his family as a therapist or as a spiritual leader you know a priest or a rabbi or an imam or something and the answer in that generation was no the answer in the generation was you that's not what you do you don't you don't tell your kids about at, at that time, you don't tell them about finances. You don't tell them about how things are going at work. You don't tell them about what you suffered during war. You don't tell them about the relationship between, you know, a man and a wife, uh, about things that go on in the bedroom. They're just topics you don't talk about. And it was, it was understood. And trying to breach something as great as that is a profound act of imagination. It's like suddenly you're, you're, you're going to start talking about things that are, that are utterly unexpected to somebody who shouldn't be hearing them. And it feels incredibly odd. And Sheldon, being a product of his, of his culture and his time, uh, which are connected, wasn't able to do that. Can it be done? I think every generation, every intergenerational gap, let's call it that, is, is, is a clunky phrase. But that gap between generations, in some ways it changes. Because when somebody of Saul's generation becomes an adult, some of those expectations are going to be different. So, for example, when Sheldon was a father, it would have been odd for him to be seen pushing a pram around the streets. Now, for men, thankfully, in my opinion, it's not. And when I have a conversation someday with my son about things where there might be a gap, that won't be one of the problematics, right? It was okay for me to do things like that. But I guess the thing is, there's always going to be something. So stage one or part one of this thing is recognizing that there's a problematic there. There's a challenge there and that we can't walk into these incredibly complicated and fraught conversations with the assumption that we are the same people likely to engage the same thing the same way. We may not know what the answer is, but we can pretty much start from the assumption that that's wrong and then wonder about what would be right. And that seemingly small move of opening yourself, uh, humbling yourself to the problem and recognizing that there is one is already a huge step in being able to move towards something better, something greater, but I'm not going to solve it in one question. <laughs> not that I have the answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, what really comes out of this passage is that 
somehow it's going to be or the, the failure to be able to speak about it as well-meaning as it may be, because uh, as you say, this isn't withholding this information on Sheldon's part is not his being cruel to his family, rather the reverse. Uh, right. he, he sees it as, as something that he doesn't want to burden his family with, and he wants them to be able to get on with things, you know. Right. But the problem that comes out here is that the next generation is damaged, hurt by this in some way. And, and, and in this particular case, it, it's very extreme. The suggestion in this is that we have to do something about this. This situation has to change. That's right. We have to somehow find a way to talk about it. Another related question, which has to do with Sheldon referring to right wars and wrong wars, because this is another, to me, another growing intergenerational gap. You know, Sheldon refers to those terms and in some ways attempts to put the stoicism and heroism of the soldier back into war in a time, the Vietnam War, where this is being lost. That's right. Can this ever succeed in a time when anyone can see and hear the horrors of war firsthand on a screen? You know, have we come into a time when, when wars will always, one way or another, be seen as unjust? For me, one of the... The new media reality is a huge component of modern warfare. It is changing the way that governments conduct war, but it's also, but we should recognize that they don't view this as just the wind for which there's nothing you can do except adapt. They're also developing techniques, you know, quite aggressively to make sure that they can control the communication environment regarding war. And this, of course, goes... This, this doesn't just go back to Vietnam. I mean, this goes back to, to Roger Fenton, you know, in the Crimean War, when the first photographs were taken. And the first things that they published, I think it was the Times of London, which they would refer to as the Times, they were only, as it were, heroic images The camera always lies because the camera is always being held by somebody and the selection of what's being shown is always made on the basis of somebody's judgment. But there is this push and pull. To to see things from war, one needs access to the events, one needs access to the imagery, and people are now you know, battling over those things. So in one way, that that's something that's that's ongoing, and it's, it's now a new feature of the world. One thing that worries me, and I think it worries me a, a great deal, particularly as we see the world sort of lapsing into extremism, is that I think we're beginning to lose a, a moral vocabulary. Where, and I don't, I don't want to pull the conversation up too much from, I, I prefer to anchor it back in, in the conversation and dialogue, but as we see this collapse of the humanities taking place at universities, as we see people moving away from learning how to discuss moral issues, or even treating morality as something that it doesn't really matter anymore. What's and I'm not being religiously dogmatic. I just mean that to say that you know if if you believe that there are there's right and wrong, you need a vocabulary in which to be able to articulate what makes it right or makes it wrong. And if you lack that vocabulary, you have the impulse, but you lack the vocabulary, then you lack the capacity to, to build a reasoned case. And if you can't do that, you can't persuade anybody of anything. All you can do is, is encroach around your own sense of correct 
And that's that's not a good basis for democratic unity, for, you know, for talking it out, which is what our job is. Can there be right and wrong wars? Yeah, there can be. Some people can do things that are horrific and wrong. And it is better to have liberty and tolerance and, and plurality than it is to have totalitarianism and it, than it is to, you know, to put people in ovens. So, yeah, I'm not confused about that. War is always a horrible thing. And what we should be working on is understanding, is trying to develop strategies to prevent war, from managing crises, from, in my view, again, if you want to go way to the top for just a moment, yes, we have a defense department, but, you know, where's, we put this much, 50% of our budget goes in, into war. And while I don't mind having a large, a strong military, where's our investment in peace? In other words, where's our investment in in diplomacy, in prevention, in crisis management, all this kind of stuff? And so we're not investing in managing the inevitable difficulties we're going to have with other countries, with other societies, with other cultures, in order to prevent us from getting right up to that red line. We desperately need to do that in a globalized world because... You know, we, we are, we're all bumping into each other in a pretty, pretty crowded place that's getting more crowded. And whenever you start rubbing shoulders, you know, conflicts erupt. So the question becomes, how do you manage those rather than how do you just prevent, you know, or win? Yeah. I wanted to go back to um, Sheldon and his phrase, getting into character, uh, you know, right. that you need to be able to, the suggestion is that people who are soldiers have a duty to be able to step in and out of war. And as he says, when you step out of war, get into character. Right. In other words, just switch on your civilian role and get on with life. Right. But the greater story of Norwegian by night is is a contradiction of this very idea. That's right. Because um, Sheldon's world is overshadowed by past wars and new wars that he becomes involved in in this novel. And although you haven't read about it in this particular passage in this book, he becomes engaged in a new war in a way by his efforts to save a boy caught up in gang wars that are an import from the Balkan Wars. Right. So can you comment on this whole business of stepping in and out of wars and getting into character? Yeah, I think that there's this um, this sort of national mythology or something that that's exactly what you do, is that you, you go to war, you man up, and this is a very gendered thing, and I realize women are fighting wars too, but let's face it, this is all coming from sort of a male perspective. And you go and you do your thing, and then you come out, and uh, that's over. And because everything you were doing was right and just and, you know, for your country and patriotic, you really shouldn't have any, any difficulty or trauma with that because uh, why would you? You know, because you were right and they were wrong and violence is terrible. But on the other hand, what are you going to do? Not do it? So there's this incredibly simplistic veneer on top of this, you know, just about the most horrible thing humanity can do to itself. And I think the fact of the matter is every generation... Every people, every individual who has gone through this, any period of time in human history, has come out fundamentally changed. It, it is not a natural thing to do these things to one another. It, it only occurred to me somewhat recently, and I don't know how it is I never put it together, but I guess it's because America never put it together for me and I just missed it, which is that the entire Wild West right? Everything we think of as the Wild West, right? Even if it's false, just your, your basic Hollywood version of the Wild West, you know, the poker games and the whiskey and the prostitutes and the guns and the whole thing. It was all the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War. 
So those were their service pistols, you know, those were still their brown breeches from Confederacy or whatever. And none of those people were, as it were, north or south, they weren't decommissioned. Nobody kind of went through their trauma. They never, they were never sort of reintegrated back into civilian life. Or in, in Sheldon's phrase, they never got back in character. They had to take all of that with them. And so no wonder they were riding around shooting each other, you know? So, you know, Hunter Thompson talked about this when the servicemen got back from uh, World War II. You know, they, they took the leather jackets from the, from the pilots and they got on uh, Harley Davidson's and they basically acted like Huck Finn and they set out for the territories you know, on their steel horses. So it's just another version of this. And so we get sort of American biker culture, which is all over the place now. I mean, you're in Sweden, you know all about it. So the point is, is that after every generation, we, we talk about it the way that Sheldon talked about it. So in other words, he's not getting this out of nowhere. I think it's a reasonable representation of what's expected of a man. And yet the historical fact of it is exactly the opposite, which is our countries are traumatized down to the individual, down to the next generations over these things that have happened and not talking about it, not recognizing it, not being able to deal with it on a personal level, on a familial level, on a communal level, on a national level. I think it's still a reasonably undocumented phenomenon of what, what it means for, for nations and entire cultures to be shocked to the core on what they've experienced and the kinds of manifestations that have all the way from child rearing in the next generation up to international relations itself. And we don't know how to deal with it. War isn't just a phenomenon that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, like a story. It is something that has the longest tail one can possibly imagine. In Norwegian by night, the thing that strikes me is that it's a, it's like a storm of four wars. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Balkan Wars right. uh, are all all somehow play a role in this story. And, you know, there are newer wars raging in the shadows of, of older ones. Right. And the feeling is that, you know, we still haven't seen all of the effects of all that. And we won't for generations. Right. There's a cry for, in a way, for peace that comes out of this. How do we end this? because, uh, you know, overall of the discussion of right wars and wrong wars and so forth, mm. it, it just seems like there's one war after another raging all the time, and the generations never cease to be affected by this. It's a funny thing about the things that, that are weaved together in a story in order to make the story that it is, as opposed to saying what a book is about, because all everything you just said, of course, is an accurate reading of the book, although in one way, it's also just a simple story of an old man trying to save this little boy, this little seven-year-old kid who is kind of a surrogate for the son that he lost. So there's a, there's a simplicity to the, to the basic plot. But all these people, most of the story takes place in Norway. Most of the people there that are involved in the story, except for obviously for the Norwegian cops, most of them are immigrants of one kind or another, whether it's an old Jewish man from New York or a bunch of people from the Balkans who came there after the war, whether Serbians or, or Kosovar Albanians or whatnot. You know, it's my experience that in the absence of knowing how to deal with, let's call it war trauma, for lack of a better term, right? Um, all, and I mean all that stuff. It could be losing a brother as opposed to fighting yourself, but short of the whole shock to the system of the whole thing. In the absence of having any way of discussing it or dealing with it or, or even having it recognized as an actual phenomenon, uh, every individual has to navigate 
those those shoals themselves. And so are you going to become optimistic or pessimistic? Are you going to are you going to become filled with rage and resentment and try to create your own moral universe and, you know, rise up into becoming what from the outside looks like a, an extremist and violent, but from your point of view is a way of recovering your national identity and your national dignity and all this kind of thing, because individuals always project their own pain outward into some sort of philosophical model that they march around in because, you know, they're not able to deal with some of their own things. Being a bunch of immigrants who deal with things differently, they're going to have different reads. And so there's going to be, there's dramatic force and effect by taking particles and slamming them together. That's what we as writers do. And sometimes see, you know, what kind of sparks are going to emerge. I don't recommend this as public policy, but it makes for great reading, <laughs> you know. Right. You mentioned the word immigrant, and which leads me to thought of identity, and then I get into the thought of Jewish identity sure. in America and in Europe, mm. which is an important topic emerging from this, and, and certainly mm. in this particular passage. So, I mean, for Sheldon, going to war for his country seems to be about being accepted as an American, despite the fact that he is a Jew. You know, this seems to me a very high price to pay for being truly accepted in America, which is meant to be a country that many have long seen as a successful melting pot of cultures and religions. Mm-hmm. If we think of the European equivalent in which German Jews fought for Germany in World War I and were murdered in concentration camps in World War II, you can actually question whether this strategy works. How do you see the standing of Jews in America today with rising anti-Semitism? And also, what is needed for Jews to be fully accepted as Americans or Germans or Swedes or whatever? America's success is not necessarily its behavior. And America's success is not necessarily its capacity to live up to its ideals. I think America's success is coming up with a new model for what it means to live with one another in a tolerant system that's anchored on individual liberty, that recognizes that we have a plurality of ways of living in the world, a plurality of beliefs and ideas and religions and thoughts. And yet, if we work together, if we create through this Bill of Rights, through this Constitution, we can create a new model for how to live. It is a great experiment of humanity. And it is, it's what makes us a new world country. It what makes us in some ways the new world country. And yes, Canada, yes, Australia and other things, and New Zealand, because they were left off of an Ikea map. So let's bring them back onto the planet. But America is still, is still the one that didn't go through, didn't have a feudal system. We weren't part of the Commonwealth. Yes, we were part of Britain, but we had a revolution from all that. And we didn't go through that feudal period. And we came up with this. We were, we were a real product of the Enlightenment. And as a product of the Enlightenment, there is a chance to say that if you're born in America, no matter what your ethnic background, your racial background, that you can be truly American. And as I've often joked, you know, which is a dark joke, but, you know, the Ku Klux Klan hates blacks and it hates Jews, but they're in that awkward position of not being able to say you're not American. They're just saying, we wish you weren't American. And I'll tell you, that's a big step up for us. So is, is Sheldon accepted as, as, as American? Yes. But the problem is, is that being Jewish in America also means having a wider perspective that's sometimes too wide. Sometimes, you know, it's a Jewish conversation 
If America has too short a memory, Jews can sometimes have too long a memory. I don't mean as a group, but I mean sometimes we really do this. You know, Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated, and the first conversation we have is about something that happened in 250-some-odd BC, when uh, the last time a Jew killed another Jewish politician, and the consequence was the Babylonian invasion, and we all know what happened there. Um, not everybody listening to this will know, but it's just this This is how these kinds of conversations uh, get picked up. I mean, there's a you know 2,500-year expanse of, uh, of casual chit-chat. So Sheldon's view on this is saying, you know, we weren't accepted. Going to war and World War II was a real moment when our Americanness was forged in a new way. And this often happens during war. Being brothers in arms is a, the band of brothers thing is, is real. Now, I'm leaving out, obviously, the entire slave experience and the and, and everything else, because there's only, in some ways only so much we can capture in this conversation. But there is a there is an understanding that if you're born there and or you're naturalized, you're an American citizen. I believe that the Jewish experience in America is different. Is anti-Semitism on the rise? Yeah, but the thing is, America is a bigoted country. And we have been bigoted for a long time, and we have deep issues of racism to deal with. Does that go to the point of saying, you don't belong here? Well, mostly no. Mostly, it's it's bigotry, right? So the, the Catholics get hell, the Irish, the Italians, the Greeks, the Polish, you know, obviously being black, uh, but so, but let's also go to things where there's other racial differences, right? If you're, if you're Vietnamese and Peruvian or something, you know, because one parent met another parent and everybody fell in love and poof, there you are. All these kinds of things are now part of American life. So these divisions between black and white and Jewish and Gentile things, these are almost old school. As time goes on, because, you know, individuals fall in love with other people and we produce new people and those people just don't line up with those old boxes anymore. So I, I happen to think that the Jewish experience of, of America to be, you know, to be a Jewish American rather than, as it were, an American Jew is a a thriving and good place to be. And so is there a rise in anti-Semitism? Absolutely. But there's also a strong rebuttal. And, and 50 years ago, it would have been impossible to have a major Jewish candidate run for office. And while, you know, whatever you think of Bernie Sanders, this is a second time running where him being Jewish is really not a major factor in the, in the campaign. Whereas there was a time, you know, not so long ago when Kennedy being Catholic or coming from a Catholic family, that, even that was an issue. So there is a broadening out, and I'm not too worried about that, although God knows I'm keeping my eye on it, and so is everybody else. But I think the fundamentals are there, but I think on the surface we have a lot of new challenges, and I'm very, very unhappy with the way it's taking on old tropes and anti-Semitism on, on the rise in general, and, you know, I'm very concerned. In Europe, we have a different thing. We're coming from a different platform, right? I mean, there isn't this new model, this new world thing going on. There's the old stuff. And most countries, and I'm leaving out Germany here, it's very hard to say whether Germany's done enough or not done enough. We have no calculus on which to measure such a monumental thing. I don't, I'm even at a loss for words on this. But Germany's been, been certainly trying. It's trying to deal with, with, with monuments and reparation and history books and programs and documentaries and youth education. I mean, they're doing it. 
Um, whether they're doing enough or not, I don't know. But what we can look at is comparatively. Compared to Japan and what Japan did to the, to the Koreans, what Japan did to China, what Japan did in the Philippines, etc., they're doing much better than Japan. Compared to what Russia did to its own people and everyone else as they marched westward, it's doing better than Russia. This isn't supposed to be high praise for Germany, but, um, um, but it's rather to be bashing everybody else, if I may. You know, Hungary is not facing its past. Poland is not facing its past. Even Italy is not facing its past, which expelled the entire Jewish population under Mussolini. We talk about these intergenerational gaps. Well, we also have a huge gap in even, at least, at least Sheldon knew that the pain existed. At least Sheldon knew the damage that had been done. He might have lacked the capacity to deal with it with Saul, but there was an understanding and, and a desire to try to, to try to bring his son home, to, to nurture him, even if he was just trying to shove food in his mouth. I don't see a lot of that happening in Europe. And my deep worry is that the lies, the falsehoods, the gaps, the lack of memory, the lack of understanding is going to be filled in. The absences are going to be filled in by a different story, a different uh, a different memory. And it's going to be one where the blame is all going to come back because it's rooted in something. So I, I'm worried. Mm, yes, uh, I share your concern. I'd like to land us exactly where you're taking us to the subject of differences and similarities between Europe and America culture clash and intertwinement. And I want to go to the intertwinement part yeah. because there is uh, in this passage an extremely striking image of this woman clutching her child to her chest as the two of them go to the gas chambers, which reminds Sheldon of, you know, he thinks of his, his wife holding Saul. Sheldon, right. throughout this book, spends a great deal of time poking fun at Norwegians because he, he part of this takes place in, in Norway and in Oslo and sure. is generally quite irritated by um, <laughs> the apparent need of Norwegians to be directed and supervised. And, and he contrasts this to freedom of choice in America. And, and so sure. there is this sure. big there is this big culture gap that's portrayed through Sheldon. But at the same time, in that image in the gas chambers there, which he can feel himself really feels deeply in his heart, the two cultures become very deeply intertwined. Of course, this is connected to his Jewish identity as well, naturally. But but it's mm. more than that. It's It's Europe and America. So could you comment on this, particularly with respect to the apparent rift between Europe and the US today? Let's take that notion of entwinement. George Washington, in his farewell address to after his presidency, warned America not to become involved in entangling alliances. That was his phrase, entangling alliances with Europe. Not to get, to give a modern Jewish spin on it, not to get pulled into their Michigas. But if we think back on what it was like in the late 1700s, it really took a lot of time to get involved in another country. You know, you had to you had to draft a letter. You had to bring it down to a big, big ship. You had to put the ship to sea and set it across the Atlantic Ocean. Somebody had, the, it had to arrive, which didn't always happen. Somebody had to get it. They had to bring it to the king. They had to have a big kerfuffle about it. And then they had to put on another boat and come back. And that's just for one round. So, you know, I mean, months go by. So there's none of this tweeting nonsense. So wars took a long time to ramp up. We're in a whole different ballgame now that was totally un, unimaginable 
to the people who, you know, who drafted the Constitution or to, or to George Washington, whoever drafted that speech. We are, we America and, and Europe are part of this one grand cultural system called the West, which is a real thing, right? It basically is the product of Athens and Jerusalem. And that entanglement now has gotten weird because we also see the, we see politicians working across national boundaries now to try to prop up like-minded political parties. They're funding streams that are working on both of them. It's a, the, the sort of the political economy of our entanglement has gotten really unnerving because it seems to be moving farther and farther away from the, the feeling of just, you know, our own democracies deciding what our own futures are, are going to be and then trying to work together to to cooperate in sort of a King Arthur's Roundtable kind of model, which is what alliances were. Now these things are all intertwined. We also share students and we share people and airplanes are flying back and forth and we are we're we're part of this grand this grand dialogue, but we can also influence each other in, in terribly, terribly negative ways, obviously. And what we share at the moment is a crisis in the West. And that crisis is a lot of things that we once had faith in are breaking down. Our faith in government, our faith in science, our faith in, in morality and our moral systems, our faith in the institutions that used to give us news and information, our faith in one another's, in, in the sense of our being sure that we shared goodwill in working together, even if we disagreed. That's breaking apart. And there are people who are breaking us apart. They're focused on the differences. They're trying to drive wedges in. And in that space, you know, forgive me, but this is how we got, you and I got started on this and is these in the space in between, uh, which is opening up this gap and this gap and it's not being filled with I think of it as sort of orienting towards one another, like looking at each other. Even if we're across a chasm, at least we're looking at each other and we're trying to send signals. But the way that you make that gap even bigger is by turning around on your opposite sides of this thing. And now you're no longer in dialogue with one another. And as soon as we do that, we are really, really in trouble because because those fissures will never be bridged. And we're seeing this in, I, I could just rattle off most countries in Europe right now, whether it's, it's, it's Catalonia voting to be independent or Scotland deciding, you know, that they might need to, uh, you know, to drop out. I'm not even sure that's the phrase, but out of Great Britain. So there will be no Great Britain as we understand it anymore. I'm not sure England and Wales and Northern Ireland can hold it together. You know, northern and southern Italy have issues. It, it goes, it goes on and on and on. And we have to decide not to do this. As small a gesture as it is, recognizing it goes back to what we we're talking about at the beginning on intergenerational dialogue and intergenerational conversation. You know, step one is recognizing that you got a problem. You know, and step two is humbling yourself to saying we might not know exactly how to fix it, but we have got to begin to step into that and have the courage to do that. Because the thing is, the people who are trying to drive wedges between us do not lack conviction, and they don't lack courage, and they don't ever seem to run out of breath. And there has to be a counterforce to this. You know, sometimes I think to myself, you know, when God said, "Blessed are the peacemakers," you know, I like to joke. I think to myself, it wasn't just because it's more good. It's because it's hard. You know, it's difficult. It's a, it's, it's, it's so much easier to throw a punch, watch the guy fall to the bar floor and walk out the door. It really is. It's so much easier to do that than just, you know, than to try to reach some kind of peace and reconciliation. Um, and yet 
there really isn't a, a long-term solution if we have to live with one another. It's like, you know, just one quick thing. It's like, uh, you know, the United States and Mexico, <laughs> we're not going anywhere. These countries aren't on wheels. You know, they're going to be our neighbors forever, absolutely forever. And as a consequence of that, you have no choice but, you know, but to work with your neighbors and try to create a greater community because we are all stuck together in a very serious way. Right. And if I may, last question, what do we as creatives, individuals do now to support what you're talking about, to support engagement, to support not turning away from one another? You and I have talked about this on other occasions, and I, I, I think that using that word creatives, you know, writers and artists, those of us who have already achieved something in the sense of breaking out into into this world and somehow reaching some measure of success so that we can we are established that that's what i mean we're established as artists and writers we're not merely aspiring we're there we're doing it we're already all of us i have never seen an exception to this we're already embedded in our own communities we're already in dialogue with usually it's thousands and thousands if not tens or hundreds of thousands of people and in order to produce art at all, you, you have to be able to imagine worlds that are not your own. You have to be able to be empathetic to other people. Even if you don't agree with them, you have to be able to imagine the consequences of actions. You have to imagine what could happen if, which is what storytellers do, what if. And a lot of artists do that. We say, what would happen if I did this with that? What would be the consequences? And we all have these imaginations and these relationships and these, in my view, these opportunities. And as the political space opens up and as the human space is opened up and our sort of our heart is, is exposed because we're not protected by one another, I think that we as, as writers and creatives and artists have an opportunity to turn back on ourselves and say, you know what? We can't just be silent about these things anymore. We can't just let this stuff go. We need to take our trusted role to use the voices that we have to to begin public conversations and to use that humanistic anchoring that you inevitably have in art. Because the thing is, it's only the societies that have embraced the humanities that have ever created art worth art. <laughs> you know, I mean, sorry, but the Nazis and the Soviets and ISIS, they're just, they just really have no sense of humor, do they? And and it goes on and on. Those of us who are anchored in liberal, the capital with a capital L, I don't care what your politics are, but the liberal tradition of, of recognizing and valuing the individual life. I think that we have an obligation now to step into that space boldly and with intelligence and with, with whatever measure of wisdom that we have to bring to bear on the problematic. And begin to talk with one another and with the communities of which we're a part and begin to occupy that space because the thing is it's going to be it's be, there i don't want to start naming names but and and creating something that's politically divisive but if you recognize you you out there in the in the world if you recognize that there is this uh this gap 
that is opening up because the, the because like the Red Sea, everything's parting and everything's polarizing. That I think that we have a role to get in there, and I think that we have the potential for nuance, for recognizing the complexity of the individual human heart, and being able to potentially, if it's handled well and with humility, to bridge some of that by opening this interesting space for talk. It's not a political space for talk. It's just like we did in in this program you and me is starting with the the dialogue starting with the literary passages you can start anywhere but it has to be somewhere where the the shovel hits the stone and i i think that's where where the human heart is moved in some meaningful way is where we can recognize our common humanity and build upward from there because that's what not building on sand looks like that's what building on on stone looks like derek miller thank you so much it's been a pleasure You've been listening to The Creative Conversations, a production of Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.